When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell the story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Welcome back to the Midnight Myth. We are here with some bonus content for you. Yeah, something significant happened last night. Very, 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 very excited for this bonus Midnight Myth. We're going to try something new. We've never really done this before. But then again, Game of Thrones has never been on its final season before. Yeah. Hence, as podcasters that are interested in the history, mythology, and philosophy around popular storytelling, we feel compelled to act. We are doing a Game of Thrones Season 8 Episode 1 Reaction Bonus Podcast. Yep, a little quick take, uh, our first impressions and some thoughts that we have going forward. If you out there, dear Midnight Myth listeners, enjoy this, let us know. If you have feedback, let us know. But we're thinking if this is successful, we'll probably do it for all of season eight. Wow, that's a that's a promise. We'll, we'll, we'll see. We'll see yeah. how it goes. No, I think that would be fun. Well, let's begin. So here's the format. This is not going to be the typical Midnight Myth treatment. We are going to be talking Game of Thrones season eight, episode, episode one. one. Winterfell. We're going to give our sort of quick reactions to it. We're going to give who we thought was the MVP of the episode and why. We're going to give what we thought were the most significant and standout scenes. And then we're going to give some predictions. Yeah, sounds good. And if you guys like it, hit us up on Twitter at The Midnight Myth. Please go to www.midnightmyth.com and check out our merch store. Yeah, click shop. You can buy t-shirts, you can buy tote bags, you can buy sweatshirts, all kinds of Midnight Myth swag to show off your favorite podcast. And there's also more blog content on the website. There is tons of information. You can learn more about our side podcast, The Wheel of Caw with Derek and Steve about Stephen King's The Dark Tower, all kinds of stuff over there. And you can get two free audiobooks by clicking on our Audible link. Click that Audible banner, you get two audiobooks on us. Because maybe you want to, you know, listen to Game of Thrones yeah, or Song, Song of Ice and Fire. Fire. Ooh, we said that at the same time. Oh my that was God. not at all practiced. 
So let's dive in. Let us discuss season one, season eight, episode one, Game of Thrones. The final season is here. Laurel, give me your gut quick reaction. I thought it was a good episode. I thought it was a great way to uh, start off the final season. I have my little quiblets here and there, but none of them were super significant. And I thought that we had come a long way from what I thought was a pretty lackluster season seven. And I think a lot of the strengths of this episode lay in the parallels to how the series started in season one with the episode Winter is Coming. Uh, I thought there were some beautiful character parallels, seeing the relationships that had begun in season one with people meeting for the first time or seeing each other for the first time across a room, turning into the most loaded and significant and lengthy arcs we've seen and people coming back together to... uh, learn where the other one has been, seeing Tyrion and Sansa together again, seeing Jon and Arya, seeing Bran and Jon see each other again, seeing Sam at Winterfell, all kinds of just amazing character relationships and threads being brought back together. I love that. I also agree. I felt like this episode was very much respecting Game of Thrones season one, episode one, It very much had similar beats. There is a like horror scene at the start of season one, episode one with white walkers and mutilated bodies in a spiral. This ends with white walkers with mutilated bodies in a spiral. There was Arya trying to climb to see the King's procession. There was a kid climbing to see the Kings marching into Winterfell with Arya standing there. There was a major scene in the crypt between Ned and Robert Baratheon. There was a major scene in the crypt between Jon Snow and Sam, and everything was converging on Winterfell in season one, episode one. Everything was converging on Winterfell again in episode one of season eight. Yeah. They felt like mirrors. The end of the first episode of Game of Thrones has Jamie pushing Bran out of the window. And the, the final shots of season uh, eight, episode one, ends with Bran and Jamie coming face to face for the first time since, since that then. happened. Uh, so, so very significant. I love that it it understood its legacy and it stood within that legacy. My gut reaction was that I loved it. Interestingly enough, I think all of the events that transpired in it, for the most part, were very well broadcasted and easy to surmise. Yeah. What made this entertaining and engaging wasn't a big battle. It wasn't getting this major plot point to converge around this big event. It was rather moments with these characters that allowed them to act and allowed them space to be these characters, to see them interacting and to have these amazing moments that were more character driven, more nuanced and less. Yeah. It felt for a big episode, a God damn it. A lot happens in that episode. It felt very contained and small in how it portrayed every scene. And I thought that was exactly the palate cleanser I needed after the like spectacular, spectacular spectacle of season seven that kind of left a little on the substance, not there. Yeah. I felt very much like we didn't learn a lot of new stuff in this episode, but all of the characters started to learn the things that we've known for a while. And the episode was confident enough to take its time in revealing those things to the characters and showing us the sort of sort of marination 
of uh, those threads within the characters themselves. So it relied on the fact that we were going to be drawn in by the performances, that we were going to be drawn in by relationships, rather than you know relying on big plot reveals every five minutes. So I appreciated that very much. Oh, I guess we should say this now. We, we probably should have said this before, but we're going to spoil the fuck yes, out of it. Yes, obviously we're going to spoil it. Yeah, so hopefully so you've seen it. Hopefully you have seen it. Do not listen to this if you haven't. Um, anyway, moving on now. That's our sort of gut reaction. I think both very positive, yeah. very favorable. You mentioned you had a few, you said quiblets. I didn't even know that was a word. Yeah. Would you um, like to mention the quiblets or? Yeah. Uh, mostly my my one my biggest problem with the episode was just in the handling of the dragon riding scene. Uh, I think we all knew that John was going to ride Rhaegal at some point, and we've been waiting for that to happen. And it happened this episode, and I'm really glad it did. And once it literally took off, I thought it was fine. But I I did feel like the first time we saw Danny ride a dragon, it was motivated by a need to do that. Uh, and this scene was very much like, go on, get on the dragon. I've decided that right now, even though I was concerned they're not eating, I'm not concerned about it that anymore. Let's just sit on them. Um, I, I didn't feel like there was a character reason that John needed to get onto the dragon. We didn't actually see him get onto the dragon. He just kind of stumbled on off screen. And it felt a little glib in terms of just getting him there and getting him to do it. Once they took off, I was like, yeah, John's riding a dragon. They're riding dragons together. But it was very much like Harry Potter riding Buckbeak for the first time, awkward and then able to handle it. And I wish there had been a, um, a reason outside of Danny wanting to see it happen uh, uh, or some kind of internal motivation that got him onto the dragon in the first place. Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense. I thought when they mentioned the dragons and that the dragons weren't eating, we would see that the dragons were in a weakened state because they don't agree with right. the climate of the North and this would hinder them in their effectiveness for all of the battles to come. And I thought they were setting up the dragons aren't as powerful. They're not going to be this amazing weapon that could just destroy and eviscerate all the enemies because they're weak, which I think is still ultimately where that will go. Yeah, but it was, hopefully that pays off. It was odd, like, hey, our dragons aren't eating. My dragons aren't eating. They're weak. Let's ride them all over the north now. It was like, yeah, okay, that was my one little, like, that didn't feel really connected. And everything else in this episode was fucking tight. Yeah, it just felt like a manufactured uh, set up to get them there and then get them on the dragons. And I feel like there are so many opportunities and so many, so many things that are handled really well with the characters of this episode that that should have been motivated by some character reason. I totally get that. I think that is a valid, I, I would call that a more nitpick. It didn't ruin anything. No, It didn't make me like the episode any less, but when you, when you're looking back at it, you're like, all right, that was a little okay. And I'm like, when when Jon Snow gets on a dragon, I should be like, oh my god, Jon Snow's on a dragon. Like I should have I should have the moment that I had when Danny got on a dragon the first time. I totally agree. It felt more like two teenagers stealing their parents' car. Yeah. They're like, ooh, and then there you was can drive the, the car. Very skeezy, like kissing Daenerys with his eyes open because Drogon is staring and breathing heavily. I don't know. I kind of related to that. I don't think I could make out with you with dragons staring at me, looking like they're ready to eat me. I think that made a little bit of sense. I guess that's true. It was just a little silly. Um, but moving right. on from that, yeah, that, that was on. my only real problem. I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned it. I think that that is a very valid nitpick. Let's get into what uh, 
our MVP scene. So what scene was to you was the standout? There were a lot of great scenes. Pick one scene that you thought was the scene of the episode. Ooh, I think so. There were a couple and I'm going to talk about when we do MVP characters, I'm going to talk about a different scene. Uh, but for me, the standout, at least the scene of this episode that made me think about the show in a different way uh, and made me think about characters in a different way was uh, when Arya and John were reunited. So, oh, go on. At, yeah. uh, in the Godswood. So if you have heard any of our Game of Thrones episodes, I've probably thrown out here and there that I am not a fan of Arya Stark. And that's the most unpopular opinion in the world because she's everybody else's favorite character. I just have a huge problem with her and I've never really enjoyed watching her. Um, this episode kind of turned me around because I felt like after a season of not knowing what to do with her and having her just be a little lurking gremlin, it gave her some really interesting vulnerabilities. It gave her uh, some power. It gave her just some like pure motivation. And I felt like I knew her. And in this scene in the Godswood, when she's reunited with John, we see her as a little girl again. We see her still haunted by everything she's done. We see the consequences of everything that she's done and how being together with John again is not the same as it was, but there is a part of her that's touched that hasn't been in a while. And she sticks up for Sansa. And for me, that was a, a really wonderful uh, good consequence of season seven where everything that they went through at Winterfell together comes together and says, actually we're Starks. We will always be a wolf pack and we'll always care for each other. And for those two to have formed an alliance in the wake of everything that's happened, I think is one of the best things to come out of all of the horrible things that have happened to Starks. I love that that was your favorite scene. My, I, may I permit me like a response yeah, or just add on to the loveliness of that scene? I love that it was in the God's Wood. I loved that Arya said specifically, Sansa's the smartest person I've ever met. So we now know- That was awesome. The person, the Lady of Winterfell, who out little fingered Littlefinger, is a power player in the game. I also love that scene because- so many people are telegraphing in bright neon shining lights. Jon Snow, you done fucked up when you gave up your crown. Yeah. You you got your allies, yes, but at a cost where you have now lost the respect of the entire kingdom you were supposed to rule. And it and she says, "Don't forget that, you know, we are a family. She won't, I won't. It kind of looks like you are." Another scene that echoes that when John's just like, you're arguing to Sansa. He says, we're arguing about titles and things. None of that matters. It's just like, Jon Snow, yes, it fucking does. Yeah. It absolutely matters. It's called Game of Thrones, buddy. You are in, like, he still is refusing to be in the great game. And he has Sansa and Arya both being like, you're in the game. Don't fuck this up. And he is, like, he gave up his throne way too easily, way too quickly in season seven. And there's been a price to be paid. And right now that price to be paid is he's not getting all the bannermen he should, that he desperately needs to fight his war. Yeah. And you know, I, I loved that, that overall consequence, John, the titles matter. Yeah. Just to respond to that a little bit, uh, cosmically, no, the titles don't matter, right? If the Night King kills you, it, it doesn't matter who sits on on what throne of, of ice. And he is uh, right about that. Cosmically, you're right, yes. But it reminds me of another um, character misstep 
uh, in Stannis Baratheon several seasons ago when Melisandre was like, this is the thing you have to do to please the Lord of Light. Uh, And he burns Shireen Baratheon. And then because of that action, all of his men abandon him. This is uh, obviously not the same thing. John is not actively harming an innocent to uh, you know follow Daenerys, but by bending the knee, by doing the cosmically right thing, uh, according to some uh, you know inner compass or rule or ruling from a, a higher power, whatever you want to call it, even though he does that right, it causes his bannerman to doubt him. It causes Lyanna Mormont to get up and be like, "We gave you a crown. We called you a king in the north." And now you're not a king in the north, so why would we follow you? And what are what are you now? Yeah. Now that you have no title, why should we listen exactly. to you? Exactly. Yeah. And it does. A bastard. Act, it, if there's one thing that we've learned in this world is that it does matter, and you chagrin politics to your peril. And John, if you can hear me, character John Snow screaming John, into the John. void. The last time you ignored politics to do what's right, no matter what, you got fucking murdered by your own men. Dude, and dark magic had to bring you back to life. Like, ah, it's so frustrating. It's great. Like, it's great television, so I'm not in any way, shape, when I express frustration about his character. I got you, yeah. It's not that I'm frustrated with the show. Like, I'm really into it, but I'm like, Jesus fucking Christ, John. That's the nature of Jon Snow. He frustrates us by doing the cosmically right thing and totally fucking up the politics of it. At some time, you have to realize... A king is a political position and you are in politics and you can't just poo-poo politics because it will ultimately come back to bite you in the ass. And we got a sense that it's biting him in the ass in this this, um, entire first episode. Anyway, that's my side rant to your MVP scene. I want to hear your MVP scene. My MVP scene was when when Tormund and the Night's Watch converge onto the Umbridge's castle and find it destroyed. Yeah, last hearth. What I liked about that scene is that, A, as I mentioned before, it harkens back to the first episode. But B, Game of Thrones has a part horror in it, and I love it when it embraces the horror. And this was a scene that I thought was totally scary. You're waiting for the White Walkers the entire time, which is a metaphor to me that, Death is the impending doom over all of us. And we are all just trying to stave off the long winter, which is when our bodies are cold and in the ground. Yeah. And this scene felt manifest of it. It also, I think you kind of get lost before this. Like the episode starts with Bran saying, uh, there's no time for like ass kissing and everything. The Night King's coming. Yeah. And then we forget about that. It's like, no, let's bring this back to the stakes. The world is about to end. Yeah. The Night King is here. The White Walkers are ahead of us. Yeah. And an entire Northern house just got wiped out. When they sent that Lord back in the very beginning. Oh, yeah. It's over. I just looked at, I just looked to you, Laurel, and I'm like, oh, he's dead and so is his whole house. And they're dead and so is their whole house. Yeah. I thought that was my favorite scene. I was at the edge of my seat. Just from pure enjoyment and fun, I thought that was the most fun um, scene in there, and I think it still helps the overall narrative and ground us back to the stakes while linking it to the first episode and why I fell in love with the show to begin with. Yeah, it was it was nice to see uh, Tormund and Beric. It was really nice to see Dolores Ed, uh, and really interesting to watch uh, people leaving the wall again in an echo of uh, season one. 
them coming down from the wall to uh, escape or uh, you know, beat the White Walkers, and they're going to converge on Winterfell now. So everything is coming together in this one place that feels just so bursting with life that how could any army take this, uh, you know, group of people who are ready to stand? But as we know, it's going to have to happen. This standoff is going to have to happen. All right, let's pivot. Who was your MVP character of this episode? My MVP was Sam Tarley. Uh, I thought not only did the actor John Bradley bring it in a really spectacular way, uh, this was a pivotal moment for Sam. And I'll and I'll say um, when we were starting the episode and the previously on began, uh, and they did a flashback of Daenerys roasting uh, Dickon and Randall Tarly in their armor, I was like, oh shit, this is a thing I didn't even think about that... John's best friend, his brother in black, is now, you know, a, the last of his family line because his brother and father were executed by John's new girlfriend. Like, that's, that's what we got here. And I was like, oh my God, is Sam going to hinge what happens in the future of this? Um, so... I also kind of, knowing that Sam knows also knowing that Sam knows the truth. John's claim to the throne, should he exercise yeah. on it by the laws of gods and men, is a more valid claim than Daenerys's. Yeah. So then, of course, you know, thinking about that, uh, I recently did a blog for the Midnight Myth. Uh, it's on our website, midnightmyth.com, called Jon Snow the Fair Unknown. And I did this blog to talk about some of the Arthurian influences on Jon Snow and offer just some light predictions about whether or not he will accept the crown when and if he finds out his true lineage. And while everybody was talking about how this is the episode, everybody's going to come to Winterfell, they're going to pay off all these relationships, and Jon's going to find out his true parentage, I was like, yeah, that's the most likely thing that will happen, but you know, maybe it won't. Maybe circumstances will conspire that he does not find out before the Night King arrives at Winterfell. So I was secretly harboring some hope that he wouldn't find out because also Daenerys is my favorite character. Like, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. She's my favorite, and I don't want to see him turn on her. So knowing all of this, and knowing the stake that Sam now has that's so personal... Uh, and watching the scene play out where Daenerys tells him to his face that she killed his father and brother, which is a very noble and queen-like thing to do. She could have absolutely just said, yeah, we've met, and walked away. Um, I thought John Bradley just nailed the acting response to that, and we got to see classic season one Sam, like Sam the, the scared, Sam the craven, kind of come out and then become bonded with the confident Sam that we have now and give us this fiery, pained, tortured, emotionally motivated person who goes in to tell John the truth. And I didn't want John to know the truth, but there is no denying that the person who had the biggest impact in this episode is Samuel Tarley and that that was earned and motivated by a personal and family connection. So he's not only reacting to the fact that he's lost two of the most important people in his life, but also the person that he loves the most here, Jon Snow, has to know and has to accept uh, his true kingliness. 
So that was, he was definitely my MVP for this episode. I totally agree. He was going to be my MVP too. Yeah. So we picked the same MVP. Oh, nice. For all of the same reasons. Yeah. Uh, you know, just to echo it, the acting in Samuel's character was phenomenal. I thought it was the best acting I have seen in a long time. And this is a show with great actors. Yeah. And this was an episode with great acting. And that was, I thought, the best acting. In particular, the like, oh, you killed my father. Well, that hurts. At he's, least my brother's okay. He's a terrible guy. And he banished me from the family anyway. I'm not happy that he's dead, but I did steal his sword. And at least me and my brother can still be, oh, my brother's dead too. And that, like, sadness... The fact that he held his composure yeah. through that sadness and was able to walk away gracefully from that. The fact that so many other characters, when confronted with a person that's harmed their family, they either go to attack or they go into some sort of Machiavellian power play. The fact that his character just got to own the sadness was really great and special to me. And the fact that he is going to try to convince John evidenced by the execution of his family that Daenerys not only doesn't have the right claim, but also doesn't have the right temperament. And hence John should be the King with all the titles. I thought that was a very powerful and yeah. personal way, but at the end of the day, Samwell not only moved the plot forward the most more than any other character in this he was also, I thought, the best actor. Yeah, agreed. and that is not to chagrin any of the other actors who are freaking phenomenal. Yeah, I just thought he was my standout. He totally brought it. Absolutely. Now, so we've got our favorite scenes. We've got our MVPs. Should we talk a little bit what ha about what happened in the crypt? Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, I just want to call out a couple of moments from the crypt because I thought that was a really well drawn scene really well directed and uh, the visuals were fantastic. As you said, it, it mirrored the season one, episode one, uh, uh, Ned and Robert in the crypt re uh, reflecting on the death of Liana and the past Starks. And for this to be the place where the revelation of John's true parentage is revealed it is absolutely perfect. Um, and as it's happening, he's of course standing and lighting a candle next to the uh, statue of Ned Stark within the crypt. And as Sam begins to reveal that uh, Lyanna Stark was his mother, John takes a step forward and stands directly next to the Lyanna Stark statue in the background. So it perfectly uh, balanced those images. And for John, I think this was an interesting emotional journey because, of course, the first reaction to this is not, I'm the king, but you mean Ned Stark was a liar? Uh, for that to be the biggest worldview that's shattered there, I think is is indicative of John as a character. I think it's very true to him as a character um, because his entire conception of self is based in wanting to live up to the Stark name, is based in like, Ned Stark is my father. He is the paragon of honor. No one will ever touch him and I should emulate him at all costs knowing that I'm a bastard and may never earn his name. So his, the aspirational quality of becoming a Stark gets kind of crashed down in that moment, which I think is, is the perfect way for John to initially react. Absolutely agree with that there. And it's also very significant 
that he pauses and you were the first to pick up on this. Yeah. And you can see in Kit Harrington's eyes, who's also just a fantastic actor, him kind of playing out what does it mean if I have a claim? And he looks at Sam and goes, quote, that's treason. Yeah, it's it's so uh so much happens uh behind his eyes in the span of a couple of seconds. He says Daenerys is our queen. Sam says she shouldn't be. And then John's eyes do a little bit of a movement, and you can tell that he envisions himself being crowned and ruling over the seven kingdoms, maybe with a dragon uh, at his side, and says, that's treason. That, referring to the journey he just took in his mind to accepting the crown. And that's the first time I've ever seen John want to lead. That's the first time I've ever seen John want to rule, want royalty. And that is what I have thought was... That's what most of my like conception of season eight has hinged on is John not wanting royalty. Uh, so to see that was a little terrifying for me because that you know means a lot of things for Daenerys. It means a lot of things for John too, and I think we're going to see a huge character journey within him coming forward. Great. One more point because I think you've opened it up to pivot towards predictions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Based off of this, one other point that we had discussed that I just want to bring about. One of the visual like clues about who's really winning this right now, if we look at how the show, this episode, portrayed King's Landing versus how it portrayed Winterfell. Yes. A few just highlights that I thought were exceptionally good storytelling. King's Landing feels empty, even yeah. though it has a million people living in it. Yeah. Queen Cersei is just surrounded by her Queen's Guard. She doesn't have any other real advisors with her other than Quyburn, and she feels and looks lonely when she is talking to uh, Euron Greyjoy in the uh, in King's Landing in in the throne room, in the which Red is Keep, yeah. usually filled with supplicants, advisors, yeah. lords. There's no one else there, and she felt very isolated. She felt very far away. Whereas when we go to Winterfell, it's full of people. It's full of action. It's full of momentum. It has people mining dragon glass. It has soldiers walking from point A to point B. It has Dothraki riding around. It's very kinetic. It feels very alive and fresh. And it feels like it there feels are, like it's bursting at the seams with people that are living there, yeah. getting ready, that understand that a big war is about to happen. Whereas Cersei feels very isolated, very empty even though she is in the place that literally has more people, yeah. the show does not have her near the people. King's Landing was just the throne room and then her bedroom with Euron, and that was it, where yeah. we saw everywhere in Winterfell. We saw commoners. We saw the highborn. We saw them making dragonglass weapons. We saw the tents where the soldiers are sleeping. It very much grounded it in a like a very real and gritty place, which I think to me is a symbolic cue of... How is the war against the White Walkers going to be won? And it's going to be won by humans. Yeah. By And what I mean by humans, by, by a shared sense of humanity and common purpose by which individuals will sacrifice themselves for the greater good. And we're seeing that symbolically in how they have represented Winterfell. We're going to see what happens to the stubborn Northerner who doesn't like foreigners to the Dothraki who don't like cold, to the Unsully who will uh, are not welcome anywhere and are considered less than men 
because they've been, you know, forcefully had their, you know, bits removed, all converging together on one common threat. And when they overcome that threat, and I predict they will, I do not think this is first prediction. The White Walkers don't win. They do get defeated. Yeah. They do get driven back. The wall gets rebuilt or the White Walkers are completely eradicated. And what is left from that will ultimately win the throne. Yeah. Whatever form or facet that is, Cersei is going to be too isolated with no allies and her cynical and brutish way to govern is not the way this world needs. It needs a Daenerys. It needs a Jon Snow. It needs someone that can govern with a conf- with compassion and consensus. And Cersei will ultimately be defeated. Yeah, uh, yeah, I hope so. Uh, I want to I throw a little bit of praise and appreciation on Lena Headey as well, who just nailed it in her few scenes. Uh, this episode it had so so much going on inside her head that we were able to see the emotions of uh, cross her face, but still with the calculated restraint of Cersei, um, knowing that she's put a hit out on Tyrion and Jamie, the person she loves, the only person that she loves who is alive, um, and dealing with the fallout of that. Um, Ooh, can I make a prediction there? Yeah. Bronn will not kill. Oh, he will not. Tyrion and Jamie. He yeah. will switch sides. Yeah. Cersei is is taking a gamble that Bronn is more self-interested than he is able to form bonds with people. And I think Bronn actually, his character has gone from just purely self-interested no matter what to be like, you know what? I like Tyrion and Jamie a lot. I'm not going to kill them for gold. Yeah. I'm finally going to do something because I think it's right and not just because I get paid. Yeah. I think we saw also, uh, you know, a, a certain humanity to Cersei and a certain just like human desire and need for warmth and human connection too. So we're seeing some cracks in the confidence that she's laid out. It, it would seem that, uh, you know, once the Golden Company arrives and she has driven away all the people who would harm her or who would... Uh, in any way threaten her will to power, it would seem that she has everything that she wants and is in the position of, you know, the greatest uh, advantage. But we also see that Euron Greyjoy, the most, like, arrogant and unfriendly and unwelcome person, offers himself to her, and she just wants to be fucked. Like, uh, there's nothing else I can say about that, but, like, Cersei... Wants to be alone, but then doesn't want to be totally alone. She wants to have some sex. And I appreciated, you know, seeing uh, that moment in her where she was like, yeah, I would never deign to even look twice at you. And you have to earn a woman this good. But then she's like, also, I would love to get laid right now. So I I just wanted to throw some appreciation on the layers uh, of the writing of that character and the few scenes that she has and the wonderful job uh, that the actor does. Do you have any predictions based off of this season or this episode? Pardon me. I have one. Let's hear um, it. And it comes from the scene uh, at Winterfell where Gendry is forging weapons from Dragonglass. He forges a uh, really cool obsidian axe that the Hound takes with him. And Gendry uh, makes a comment about how it's a difficult material, about how it's really tough to work with. Uh, which makes sense because it's obsidian. It's not steel. He's a blacksmith. He's someone who works with iron and metals. He doesn't work with 
these brittle and fragile stones, but we know that it's uh, tremendous at killing white walkers. So um, the prediction that I have goes back to a legend from the North that is present in the books. I don't believe they've mentioned it in the show unless old Nan mentioned it at some point, but during the long night, a hero in the North known as the last hero was said to have defeated the others or defeated the white walkers uh, with a sword made of dragon steel. Now, dragon steel is, uh, we don't know what that material is. We don't know if that refers to dragon glass. We don't know if that refers to Valyrian, Valyrian steel. steel or what. Um, but it's very clearly called dragon steel. Now, there are some people who believe that the last hero is the same as the prince who was promised or Azora High, uh, one of these other heroes who was said to have uh, destroyed uh, the White Walkers at the last long night or at least pushed them back. Uh, we don't know if it's the same person. It could be. But at this point, I think that the seed was laid uh, in Gendry being like, yeah, I can make something for you, Arya. Why would you need something like this? Working with the brittle material that is dragon glass, commenting on her Valyrian steel blade, I get a sense that dragon steel may be a, um, a combination of these materials perhaps Valyrian steel fortified with dragon glass or vice versa. And the dragon steel blade that destroys the White Walkers may be forged at Winterfell, perhaps by Gendry. So that is my one prediction, just based on those That was very things. granular. I know, yeah. I don't like to go like really big. I don't think Bran is the Night King. Like, but anyway, that was, that was what I got from well, that scene. I, I love that. That's a fantastic prediction. You and I had totally different takes on the yeah. prediction. I, I'm thinking more like big picture. What are things that are going to happen? You know, the Alliance in the North will ultimately defeat the White Walkers and then ultimately take the throne. Right. Who will sit on it? We will. I, I big, bold prediction here. John kills Daenerys and John becomes the king. Well, okay. Okay. Big, yeah. Bold big, prediction. bold prediction. But if, so if the sword of dragon steel is forged by Gendry or someone at Winterfell, and it's the same, uh, it, the last hero tradition is the same as Azor High or the prince that was promised, then this is Lightbringer, right? Lightbringer could be about to be forged. Um, and if you're not familiar with the Azor Ahai uh, prophecy, I would definitely catch up with it. The gist of it is that this great hero forged a sword, tried to temper it in water, but it broke. Uh, forged another sword, tried to temper it in the heart of a lion, but it shattered again, forged one last sword, plunged it into the heart of his beloved wife, Nissa Nissa, and instead of shattering, it caught flame with her heart and became the flaming sword that brought the morning, that ended the long night. So perhaps those two predictions are related. Perhaps John will kill Daenerys. I don't see it, but... It's happening. After this episode, I see it more likely than I had before. Other prediction. Um, do you have any like main characters that you think are going to make it to the end or that you think won't make it to the end? I am mentally preparing myself for Jorah Mormont's death. Um, I don't see him making, a, making it out alive. And I don't know how it's going to happen. I think it may happen at Winterfell. And I'm not going to be okay. Um, other than that, I think um, I think we may lose Tyrion, and I think we may lose Arya. I think Sansa will survive. 
I think Jon Snow is likely to survive. I think we may lose Daenerys. There you go. I uh, I largely agree with all Not of okay those. Not okay with any of it. Yeah, I largely agree with all of those. I do think... Uh, Davos will survive. I do think most of the, the Jorah Mormonts, the Samwell Tarleys, most of these, these characters are going to die in the battle that comes. You think Sam's going to die? I think it's more likely that he dies than not. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, so, so you don't think he's like he's the guy writing the history in the future? No, no, I do not. I think it's much more plausible that Sam pushing John to essentially usurp and claim that he is the rightful king will be a plot thread that drives a big stake through this alliance. Oh, yeah. And the alliance of John and Daenerys is what you need to defeat the Night King. And if they defeat the Night King before, if the climax of the show isn't defeating the Night King, if the climax of the show is in episode three, which is what a lot of people are saying. Episode three will be the is North. Winterfell, Battle of Winterfell. Versus the, the, the Army of the Dead. That means we've got three episodes left if the Army of the Dead is defeated then, and it may not be, but if it is, to hammer out the, the war for the throne. But if there is a war for the throne, Sam doesn't get out of that alive. Okay. Because. Yeah. Because uh, if Daenerys sits on the throne, then he's a traitor. Yep. Um, yeah, that's true. And I also don't think Sam understands the gravity of the political situation. And no. people that don't understand the gravity of the political situation die. There's one character who is unequivocally on John's side, who is also a good character, however, is a character that understands the political implications and a character that can give John the advice that John needs, a character that can help John, a character that could, in the laws of gods and men, marry John. And that's Sansa, Sansa Stark. And yeah. I do think she makes it out alive. And I think her and John. What have rule. I been saying? What have I been saying? Yeah, I could see it. All right. Any last final thoughts on the bonus? Uh, I'm really, really excited that it's back. I wish there were more episodes right now. Um, I can't wait to hear what everybody else has to say. We're definitely going to do some more um, of our deep dive character studies of Game of Thrones, if not soon uh, during the, the run, then right after the run, we will absolutely have some wrap-up character studies. And right now we're running a poll on our Twitter about who our next one will be out of four options. If you have another one that you would prefer, uh, then feel free to write in. But we're running a poll between Bran Stark, uh, Catelyn Stark, uh, Marjorie Tyrell and Davos Seaworth. And I think all four of those would make fabulous character studies in the future, but Bran is winning right now. So go over to our Twitter at The Midnight Myth and vote or write in somebody that you would like to see a character study for. We'll probably get to every character by the time, <laughs> you know, this is over. So, And also, guys, let us know what you think. We would love to hear your predictions for Game yeah. of Thrones. So tweet them at us, drop us a, a line on the website, and until next time, be kind. Dalla Morghulis.